0: Carrie how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you so so much for your email. I was getting to it but I'm like, you know what Trish? This is the kick in the backside that you actually need. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Just a quick note to let you know I spoke to Carrie last year so when you do go to her website you will see that her business has grown and changed but her story is still so important because she's really open about her expat journey, how she got started, where she got stuck, how she found resources. I love that she is honest about how it was a sort of a slow burn, and it wasn't overnight. And she tried quite a few different things before she found something that stuck. If you are an artist, then pass this on to another artist that you know. Introduce yourself as much
1: as you feel comfortable doing. Hi everyone, my name is Carrie Brummer. I am an artist, I am an art educator, I'm a dog mom. I have a husband too, I guess he counts. And uh, I live currently in Ottawa, Canada, but I was actually born in the States, but I haven't lived there for almost 13 years now. Yeah, I think I'm. my life is very driven by my love of art, and that's part of why my art is also now kind of my major focus professionally as well.
0: I love the dog mom. I always forget that. But yes, I'm a dog mom, too. They are so important. So are husbands, but yeah. yes. dogs need love, too. Yes, they do. Okay. Does the word expat have negative connotations to
1: you such a good question it never did initially when i first became an expat so to speak i never thought of it as being a bad thing i was like i'm an adventurer and i get to connect with people from different places of the world and be exposed to new ideas and opportunities and just open my mind to new experiences and new value systems as well So for me, it was all about kind of that new openness and opportunity for new connection. But then while I was living as an expat, I realized that there are some stigmas sometimes attached to that label. And it was, you know, I think that's something we all navigate, right? Is, well, then how do we decide we want to deal with that label? Do we want to use the term or can we kind of make it our own?
0: Yes. And I choose to make it my own. I don't know what another word is to describe the way that I live my life, except for expat. So like, what other word can I use? You talked about navigating different value systems. What value system have you had to step into and navigate that was the most alien
1: to your own innate one? So, I mean, I'm in Canada now and I'm American and, and there is actually quite a lot of overlap in our cultures. They are not the same, though a lot of people assume they're the same. They're not. But there is a lot of overlap. So I've spent nine years in the Middle East prior to my time in Canada, and it was in United Arab Emirates and Oman. And I think the shift that was, it wasn't necessarily like something I had to battle, but it was uncomfortable trying it on, so to speak, or, or adjusting, was understanding how certain behaviors or actions could be so offensive to a different group of people when they might be something very natural to you or to your culture. So this is kind of a laughable one. But so I learned how to drive in New York and just outside of New York City. And using certain gestures is actually just part of the driving experience around there at times. And it is so offensive in the Middle East to use that same gesture, that there was a story in the news when I was there that someone had actually been run over by a driver who was so mad that they, as a pedestrian, they had used that gesture, they got so mad, they actually just drove into them and killed them. And the way it was phrased in the news was almost, not that it was justified, but like, of course they were mad. And that is something that's really hard to explain to people who haven't lived in a place that has different sets of rules. I actually have no problem having control with those kinds of gestures, but it's that idea of body language and the way we naturally interact. You know, like when you are with your spouse, if you've lived in a country where you can, you know, give them a quick kiss or even make out in public, you know, like it's very different living somewhere where that's not okay. And, you know, my partner and I met in Dubai. Where PDA is not acceptable or it's not, you know, you have to be very careful. And so, you know, when we went on one of our first trips together to Europe, we were in Italy and we were like snuggling up together and kissing. And then a waiter came in. We were in this really, really nice restaurant, and they had kind of given us our own little corner. And when the waiter came in, we both immediately like sat apart like we were in like elementary school and in trouble, like, oh no. And you just saw his face, like, really, guys, you need to relax, you know. But, you know, that again, we were not used to, uh, you know, since we've met, you know, we'd been living in places where public displays of affection are frowned upon. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it kind of just gets into your psyche. So do you still have any sorts of mannerisms or thoughts that are now part of you from some of the places that you've lived? You're like, okay, actually, that works.
1: Yeah, I'd say I probably dress a little more conservatively than I used to in general. I don't feel as comfortable wearing more revealing clothes anymore. Also, my language has changed a lot. I spent a lot of time around people who are British English speakers. So I've noticed some of the words that I use, my cadence has changed. I've come back home and friends have been like, you speak differently now. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I do. You know, they hear words like queuing up for something and they're like, who are you?
0: (laughs) Yes, the queue thing sometimes drives me mad in some countries. Sometimes I just look at it and it's so chaotic. And I'm like, no, actually, I was in front of you. That is my place. These are the rules. Tell me a little bit how you got to Dubai and what you were doing there.
1: Prior to my move was teaching at a charter school in Massachusetts on Cape Cod. And they had a specific kind of curriculum. That was actually my first teaching post. I was teaching high school art right out of university. And I was very fortunate that they had an international curriculum called International Baccalaureate. And so my first teaching gig included training for IB art. Because of this curriculum, obviously a lot of the teachers that I'd worked with had already had the experience of living overseas and traveling the world teaching. And that was a big new kind of, oh my goodness, this is a possibility. I could live like this. I was like, yes, this is, it. I'm all in. Like, this sounds like the best thing ever. So, because I already had IB training, which can be hard to get, people were like, you're just out of college. You already have IB training. Go spread your wings. If there's a time for you to travel, this is it. And I really took that advice to heart. And the only thing I didn't do was, I didn't believe them when they told me that I had to pretty much decide and start looking for jobs in January for the next school year. I was like, that's so early. I have to say no to the job that I'm currently in that soon and not even know if I have another job that there was a lot of anxiety around that. So I avoided and avoided things until I pretty much signed up for the last job fair that you could find for teaching internationally Mm -hmm. and through search associates. And so I showed up and because it's the last fair, often most of the most coveted positions were taken, so to speak. And of course, especially when this was 2006, I think, You know, it was a time period where I'd say the media was also very unhappily portraying the whole region of the Middle East. So, less people were willing to take those jobs. So, predominantly jobs in the Middle East were the only ones available at this juncture. So, I was looking around like, well, I don't know. There was a job in Egypt and there was a job in Dubai. And at that time, Dubai was just starting to show up in the news. So, I hadn't even really heard of them. But the things that I was hearing about, Dubai as a city and the fact that they were growing and kind of finding their identity, something about that really appealed to me. And I said, "Eh, why not? So kind of on a whim, I went with the Dubai. I had also applied for a job in the outskirts of Boston, but the job requirement would have prevented me from making my own art and because of the hours teaching. So that ultimately was also part of the decision. So I said, okay, I'll go to Dubai. So I packed my bags and uh, went to Dubai to teach, actually, elementary art for a year, knowing that I'd likely be able to transfer to the high school art department shortly thereafter, which is exactly what happened.
0: Perfect. Obviously, art isn't
1: just what you do. It's actually a part of you. It's so hard to describe, but yes, it's something that's always been a part of my life. My mom is a maker. She went to school for art. She's modeled for me the idea that art can be something you just enjoy. You don't have to do something with it. You know, people are okay with having watching Netflix and just enjoying Game of Thrones. But for some reason, if you make art, you have to have to produce or sell or or show or all these other things. And she really gave me permission to think about it in a different way, which has only really sunk in recently, to be honest. But I always knew that I wanted to make. It's always been something I've done. And I knew that teaching would give me some of the financial security that I wanted. And then also, I could really dedicate some of the summertime to really working on my own art and kind of have that balance.
0: When we do think about art, we think of it as an also ran. It's like there's got to be something else and then art. It can't just be art. So your mom actually sort of providing that permission and that space for you to be who you are was, was, is actually quite amazing. Do you find that it's a conversation and a battle that you have to have with people to explain, yes, I teach, but my art is equally important? How do you have that conversation
1: if you do have it? So there's actually kind of this issue with teaching art, where some people will actually approach you um, even within like teaching groups. So other art teachers might approach you and say, so do you teach art and make art or are you just an art teacher? And there's so much unspoken kind of judgment or assessment around those things. And that's part of why I've actually motivated to start teaching online and working with adults, because I really am bothered by these misconceptions and Preconceived notions and definitions of art that kind of limit people from doing the things they want to do. And so I've always known that showing my art is something I want to do. That's part of my personal definition of artistic success for Carrie. And so that is something I've worked towards. But I also knew I wanted financial stability. I couldn't be a freelancer. Um, at the time in the States, there were such things as pre existing conditions. So I had to have health insurance to make sure I was covered and I wasn't going to risk anything like that for my own health. So having a job was actually a huge must have for me. And I just loved having the access to students and the opportunity to help them shift their mindset. Sometimes maybe their parents, maybe not so much, but actually working with some of those parents and hearing some of the stories that they have around their own experience as students or exploring art is actually kind of what's led me to some of the work I do now.
0: Yes. You said defining artistic success for yourself is also really important. Is that something you coach people to do and you always try to instill in your students or is that sort of a
1: personal stance? That is something I preach as well. I really, really want people to understand that they need to dissect or kind of sift through what messaging they're digesting from others that's creating their definition of art and what's actually what they want to do. Because there are some people who feel like they have to show or sell to justify buying art supplies. It's not actually about their desire to do those things, but that's the only way they feel like they can be allowed in their family to spend the money on it. And I'm like, well, does your partner golf? Because golf's really expensive and I'm pretty sure they don't have to coach, teach, or be a professional golfer to be able to spend their money on golf. But yet we have this. There is kind of this really worldwide cultural devaluing of the arts as even just a hobby. And it's really upsetting to me because we actually made art before we invented the written language. There is nothing more innately human than our desire to to play with materials and use them as a means of communication. And there's so much research now that shows that this is such a wonderful way to deal with trauma in our lives, to deal with stress and cope with everyday just life. And yet we don't give ourselves permission to do that. And I've specifically noticed this with women, more so because we're, we're typically labeled as the primary caregivers in our families. So we're caring for our parents, we're caring for our children, we have all these other responsibilities for possible household things. And so those always seem to be more of a priority or more important in our head, like we should have to do those first. And so then if we choose art in front of those things, it's almost like we're denigrating our family or our friends, not that we're actually elevating and and owning the importance of art in our lives. And so it's really important to dig into that kind of thinking and definition of art so that we understand why we think what we do and help ourselves really then set goals for ourselves if we have any around our art that are aligned with our actual spirit and kind of connection to art and source
0: wow i'm about to go light a fire under the three artistic people that i know yay (laughs) because yes go do it (laughs) yeah because i know that they love doing it but it's like oh well i've got to do this so i'm the one who cannot draw And that's okay. (laughs) But it's just like lighting that fire under them. I'm like, yeah.
1: Yeah. So my art teacher hat does want to come on right here and say that everyone can actually learn to draw realistically. So a lot of people, when they say they can't draw or they can't do art, it's because they think they can't draw realistically. But it is like learning to ride a bike. If you've never been taught how to do it, how could you possibly be expected to the first time? And none of our curriculums, very few worldwide, actually teach drawing as in draftsmanship. One area where I found that to be true was when I was teaching in Dubai, I had quite an international student body. And a lot of my students from South Korea had very, very strong drawing skills. And it's because it's part of their curriculum for all students.
0: That's very cool. Yes, because it can kind of give your confidence a knock if everybody's looking at this potted plant and drawing it. And then what you've drawn looks like, I don't know, a misshapen elephant or something. <laughs> when you actually about to leave the US. Was there any nervousness? Was there that sense of what am I doing? I don't know anybody there. Or was it like, yes, let's go. This is going to be awesome.
1: Oh, there was all of the above. I was so nervous. I felt in some ways because I didn't have the choices that I imagined I'd have for teaching posts. I felt kind of cornered. And I was like, well, I'm not even sure. Are any of these jobs right for me? Like, is this what I really want to do? And especially because going to Dubai meant initially teaching elementary art, which I hadn't done before. I was like, oh my goodness, what am I getting myself into here? You know, is this going to work out? And then on top of it, I'm like, well, where am I going to live? They said I don't need a car. I mean, they provided housing for us, which made a, you know, that's a huge relief to know that you're going to come to an apartment. But like, what do I pack? How do I dress? What What's expected of me there? How much money should I bring? Like just all these worries. And of course, my family, I had My father was kind of excited for me, but also like terrified because of the news about the Middle East. And is this going to be safe? Like, are you going to be safe? There was a lot of worry in my family about safety. And so I was navigating my desire for approval of the authority figures in my life because that's kind of always been part of my personality and also my desire to explore and do something new and take a risk. So I was optimistic, but I was scared to go by myself and not know anyone and kind of not know what it was all going to look like.
0: So for somebody who's at that precipice right now, you know, what should they consider first?
1: For me, it's the best decision I've ever made. I feel more attuned with who I am, going away from my home country helped me better actually understand what it even means to be American. I didn't really understand what that meant before or what would be qualities of being American. It better helped me understand my personal identity. I ended up meeting my my love of my life, my husband. And I have so many lifelong friends now that I would have never met had I not gone overseas. And I have to say, it doesn't mean that it was easy. My first year actually was quite hard for me, but I am so glad I stuck it out. But the first year was really challenging and it wasn't until kind of the second year that I felt a little more settled and I kind of really found my group of friends and kind of got into a groove. But if you're willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit and understand that there's so much reward in all the travel you get to do and all the things you get to see and explore, it's worth the leap. But, you know, change is always uncomfortable and that's something we typically like to avoid as humans. So, It's really important to understand that being an expat is an exercise in being uncomfortable a lot.
0: Also, that's part that we never really talk about, because I also feel in every place that I've been, it takes me a year to find my feet. So what were some of your personal coping mechanisms for doing that? What was that process like for you?
1: I am a very self-reflective person and I lean introvert. When I'm in a group of people, they would never guess I'm introverted because I love to talk to people and chat them up and I can get very, very chatty, but I like having alone time. So a lot of the expat teachers that I worked with, every single vacation, even if we had a three-day weekend, they'd be traveling somewhere. And I didn't do that. I'd stay home and kind of every other one travel and I'd stay home in the in-betweens and have a staycation where I'd go to the beach in Dubai. I'd kind of let myself sit in a cafe in the city and just kind of be like, this is home now. And I'd actually make time to make my art. For me, that's always been a coping mechanism. If I'm upset, if I'm I'm struggling with something, making art has always been a way for me to slow down and kind of, I don't know, feel some self-care and self-love. And the other thing for me has always been being near water. I've always somehow managed to live near a body of water of some kind. And so going to even just sit at the beach, even if the weather's not great, has always been something that grounds me. Mm.
0: Just digging into what you said, let's bust some stereotypes and some stupidity. You talked about going to the beach in Dubai. Talk about life day to day in Dubai? And let's try and give a more rounded picture of what life is like in Dubai, please.
1: Uh, Great question. So yes, I could wear a bikini at the beach without a problem. There were public beaches at the time. I think a lot of them now are, well, there might be paid parking. Things have gotten a lot more built up since I was there in 2006. But yeah, you can pretty much wear whatever you want, though it is respectful to cover your shoulders and dressed to kind of have things reach your knees. But especially when people are going out to bars or restaurants at night, people wear pretty much whatever they want. And it also depends kind of where you're living in town or where you're going. So if you're going to go to kind of the gold souk area and tour the markets, then people all kind of make a greater effort to dress a little more conservatively. But again, that means covering shoulders. and. Dress, you know, having something to your knees. It doesn't mean wearing an abaya or covering your hair or having to do any of that. So you kind of just walk around as you please. The other thing is, is like, I pretty much lived my life the way I would back home. I could celebrate all my holidays. The longer I lived there, the more they had Christmas decorations and Christmas music and malls. And, you know, so they're very tolerant of other faiths, actually. And that's something I think people don't understand or assume. I don't know. It's just busy because it's a big city. And so, you know, getting into queues for grocery stores and taking cabs to go everywhere. There wasn't a metro yet when I first moved there. So you had to take a cab who pretty much didn't use public transport because you never knew if it was actually going to show up or not. So public transport's a lot better now. Pretty like straightforward though, the line. So often you have to take a bus or a cab off of it to get places, but it's really easy to drive around too. You just need to be defensive driver, which really, again, if you've driven anywhere like New York, then you're going to be totally fine. People think because it's Muslim and more conservative that that means you can't party, that you can't go to the beach in a bathing suit, all these things. But Dubai is a very much a party culture, actually. You can choose how much you participate in it and you can actually have a lot of fun even if you don't like to drink. But there is a pretty heavy drinking culture in the city for expats specifically. And there's like all you can eat and drink brunches every weekend. That's actually quite a big thing that people like to participate in. A lot of people for their birthdays will have a brunch and have people come and join them for a brunch in honor of their birthday. So, you know, if anything, I think I lived a little more excessively there than I ever did in my home country. Yeah. Okay. So
0: you're in Dubai, you're teaching IB, you make a love of your life, and
1: then... What makes you leave Dubai? Well, while I was teaching, I actually started to feel like I wasn't quite doing enough to reach or serve. There was something in me saying, you're supposed to be doing something else, Carrie. So I decided to get my master's in educational leadership. And there was an opportunity for me to be assistant principal at the school. And I applied and the superintendent was very much a mentor for me she hired me as assistant principal for the high school and i thought maybe this was it this was going to be kind of my next step into this leadership or whatever i was feeling called to do that i didn't fully understand so at the same time my husband's working and you know the year that year's going pretty well it's super challenging in that job role i loved the people i worked with but there was there were a lot of disciplinary issues that year and to face and navigate and it was so stressful so here i am kind of navigating this stress, wondering what the heck did I do because I felt kind of further from my art even though I knew that was going to be part of it. And I was sitting in the office of the principal while we were navigating a specific discipline issue and I looked at him and said I would never trade what I'm doing right now or give up. I would never quit. But sometimes I really wish this was just taken out of my hands. So, probably within 2 hours, I got a call in my own office from my then fiance And he told me he had a job transfer offer to Muscat Oman. And I had immediate goosebumps all over my body. And I just felt this sigh of relief, like this is what's supposed to be next. And we talked about it for him professionally too. Um, His company ended up being bought out and there were some concerns they might close down the Dubai office. So we knew that he should probably take this transfer. So we decided that this was kind of the universe saying, this is what's next, guys. And so we got married that summer and moved to Muscat Oman in the fall.
0: Okay. (laughs) I'm just processing all of that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The story is kind of crazy, but it, it just, it's funny for me. Whenever I've had kind of shifts in my life, I've kind of had some kind of moment like that where I've really felt Like, okay, this is something I need to trust.
0: Yes, yes. And people don't put enough credence in that. It's like, you know what? Your gut was your first way to make you safe, and it's still valid. Go with it. Just go with it. You know, your body normally will tell you what is right for you. How much did you know
1: about Oman? I guess I'd been camping once. I mean, it's close enough to Dubai, right? That a lot of people in Dubai, when they want to have kind of more of a nature connection, they go to Oman to go rock climbing or camping or boating, things like that. And so I'd heard a lot about it and lots of my friends like outdoorsy things. And they were all like, This is great. You're gonna love it there. You know, it's just quieter, right? Muscat's a city, but it's it's not like Dubai. And so we were both like, Well, everyone's telling us how great this is. This is gonna be awesome, right? So we get there. And for the first year, it was exactly what we both needed. I was really sick and kind of tired and worn out from the stress of the job. And it really let me recuperate and relax. And at the same point in time, this made me realize that i'd been I didn't had a blog on the side where I was writing about art and art education and starting to connect with adults about the arts while I was teaching. And I kept writing and doing that while I was assistant principal. And it was just like, oh, okay, so that's actually what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to go all in on this blog stuff and connecting with people and building community online. So I saw it as an opportunity in Oman to take the time to do that.
0: Did it feel real to sort of build a community online? You're meeting and talking to these people and you have a lot in common. Did it give you the same sort of satisfaction as if you were in the same
1: room as these people? Initially, no. And especially because I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know what my end goal was. I knew I could build community and make connections and possibly earn money from it. But I didn't really know how to put it all together. And I didn't know how to reach the people I wanted to serve. So I was kind of all over the place trying things, trying to connect. I think it finally felt real to me when I was in Muscat and had built a Facebook group to kind of pair with the email newsletter that I send out to the community. And someone was moving to Muscat and found my group and liked the arts, and she and I got to meet in person and became good friends. And that's when I realized that's the power of this online community. Because wherever I go now, and that's exactly what happened when I came to Canada as well, there were people already that were part of my community that were like, oh, you're gonna be near me, can I show you around when you move in? And I'm like, heck yeah. And these are my people. They like the same thing. It's actually been now a door for me that wherever I move in the world, I'm likely to have some kind of connection to someone that's going to ground me in that physical connection too.
0: That's amazing. I just think the nugget we can get from that is like that little inkling about writing your blog or putting it online or joining those groups. Just do it. You don't have to know what it's going to turn into, but It just opens doors eventually.
1: Yeah, it does. And you figure things out as you try things. That's the part that my perfectionist nature struggles with. I self-describe as a recovering perfectionist for that reason. So... I like to have a plan. I like to have systems and everything should work out. But of course, as expats, we know that's never how it works. Getting the internet when I was in Oman was such a drama. It was six and a half weeks. Our internet didn't work. And I literally, it was me sobbing on the phone because I was so angry. And that actually brought someone the next day, you know? And So, you know, like weeks of calling and asking for help and nothing happened. <laughs> like expat life just doesn't have that kind of easy, clear, straightforward plan. And Neither does really anything in our lives, but we imagine more control in other environments. And so it's been a really good lesson for me to know, hey, as I test things out, as I experiment, I can decide what works and what doesn't and reiterate. Staying in Oman,
0: your online community started to grow. How did you grow and how did your online community grow?
1: I, while I was there was on a spousal visa so i didn't have the ability to work so while i was doing the community stuff online it really was just kind of free blog stuff and connecting and then i took a course called b school actually just before i left for oman when we were waiting for my visa to come in and he was already working in muscat and it really helped me understand the foundations of building a business because i didn't really know anything about entrepreneurship and it also helped me see that what I should do for me, because typically speaking, some people of different nationalities will form their business in the country they're living in because they don't have to worry about taxes in their home country because they can say they're a non-resident. But Americans, we always have to file taxes. And, and if you have a business in a different country, you're going to have more kind of tax issues. So I formed my business in the States while I was living in Oman. And I formed it in the state that we were most likely to move to, should we ever move there. And so basically, it's incorporated in the state of Texas. And so the business operates out of Texas, so to speak. But, you know, then I could be wherever. And, you know, obviously, this is a bit gray. uh, But that's how I was navigating what felt right to me. And so I focused on teaching and serving online. And at the time, I, I was still trying to figure out what to sell to people. So I was offering a lot of free workshops, so free online webinars or workshops where I just did demonstrations of different art materials, because that's part of what you do when you teach high school art. You teach printmaking and how to paint, how to draw, you know, all the different basic sculpting. You do all these things so I could teach all those lessons to adults and just give them that opportunity to explore and play with material with me. And that's how I started connecting with people and having conversations and getting to know people better. And once I started doing that, I could start to understand some of their interests and some of the problems they faced as creatives. So I could start to build course content that might actually serve them and that they'd want to invest in.
0: And then how long did that process take you? And what were the thought processes from going to, I want to help people online and give free webinars to actually, I could be charging for this?
1: The whole time I had been blogging, part of me started and discovered people who were earning money. So it had always been in the back of my mind that that was a possibility. So all of this going on was me being like, well, could I sell these? Could I sell my workshops? Could I sell a longer program after the workshop? And I just, I gobbled up everything, every podcast, every ebook, every, everyone that was writing anything about this stuff I still can be pretty voracious in my thirst for this kind of information and so I just took it all in and I did build my first course while I was there and I basically had beta testers and I actually what I learned from it was I give too much information and overwhelm my students at times and it's better to break it down into smaller bits so that they get better results and then you can keep giving them more later and you know that's some of the adjustment from teaching in a classroom and teaching online and and actually now i think i'd be a better classroom teacher as well because of some of these lessons i've learned so it is it's kind of this give and take i knew i was working towards online courses because i knew i wasn't sure about selling my art at the time and i still was looking for my voice i'd been exhibiting in group shows and things but i hadn't really found the thing i wanted to talk about in my work and I was exploring and trying to play with that on the side as well and that's part of what I share with my community because I want them to see that I'm I'm walking the talk and I think that's more powerful for my students than me just giving them the advice and I do see that they like to be participants in my journey as an artist and I think they really like the work I'm making now in part because they've been part of the journey and they've been witness to me refining and figuring out what I want to say with my work and that is also now part of what I try to do with my students in a mastermind program I have called The Circle.
0: Okay, so we've been sort of dancing around this a little bit. Tell me about your business and
1: what it is that you actually do and who you serve. Okay, so my community and business is called Artist Strong, and I help artists build their skill and develop their unique artist voice. Those are my two main focuses. And I have educational programs. So I'm actually just launching a program called Self-Taught to Self-Confident, and it's about foundational drawing skills that help them then make any art that they want to make. So there's some lesson content, too, about once you learn these drawing foundations, how could I connect it to the painting that I do? That's kind of a build your skill section. And then I have a mastermind program called The Circle where it's a six month mentorship and community space where it's artists who are saying, I want to find my voice and I want to make sure I show up for my art regularly. So I'm part of this community. And some of them are even a little step further and they're like, okay, I'm ready to build that portfolio and put together a website or possibly start selling my or showing my work. And they're at the beginning stage of that. So I've been working with those. I'm currently like wrapping up my circle program. They finish end of june i run it usually from january to june or july
0: that is the hope that the more people make time for it the more art we see the more people are producing that we will get back to just appreciating art for what it is
1: i hope so yes i read that in bali they have no word in their language for art or artist because it's so part of their culture to be a maker And I kind of like that as my baseline. Can we get there again? Can we get to a place where people feel permission and justified to make just for the joy of it? And just because it's part of the human experience, I consciously work on building skill because a lot of people who do say I can't draw or I'm not good at art or they start with mixed media art, like an abstract kind of style And then they start to worry, well, am I only doing that because I can't draw realistically? And I don't think that should be the reason we choose a medium. I want people to be empowered as an abstract artist saying, I can draw realistically, but you know what? I know this is my jam. And that's what's important to me is I want to provide people ways to feel empowered in their choices as an artist and creative. So. I'm looking for the areas where they feel or they have some kind of limiting belief that's kind of holding them back. And I want to give them all those tools so that those limiting beliefs can't be excuses anymore for whatever they're hoping to do with that creative expression.
0: That's perfect. What was the emotional process from going from trailing spouse to business owner? How did you navigate that?
1: Such a good question. Honestly, I felt very insecure that I was giving up my financial independence in some ways. I felt like I couldn't contribute in the same way for our family. Like earning money has always been something for me. I think that's been part of my feeling of independence and empowerment. So even though it was right for me to leave that job, it was scary to leave the job and know that that meant, you know, I had to I had to put trust in my partner and have some faith that he was okay with it too. And of course we talked about it and he said it was fine. You know, like this was a choice we had to make. We had to move for his job. Well then that meant I couldn't work and I'd have to start building some relationships at schools potentially to see if we could make it happen, right, if I was going to go back to teaching. And so we were like, this is an opportunity for you to give this blog stuff a try too. So my coping was overworking. So because I was home all the time and kind of on my own, I felt like I had to use every minute for work to try to prove to myself, I guess, because I didn't really tell him. <laughs> you know, it's not like when my my husband Joseph came home from work, he was like, "So what? You know, what happened today? You know?" Like we just have our little chat and be like, "Yeah, I worked on stuff," but I really felt like I had to use every minute really, really well to feel that I had this time because it kind of felt like this gift to have this free extra time. And I I almost felt a little guilty that I had it.
0: Yes. I also felt like it was a gilded cage. It was a great experience, but also who I am is tied up with what I do and my job title and how I'm contributing also financially. (laughs) So I understand that there's gratitude and there's guilt and balancing that and talking about that was also really important. I think sometimes people are too afraid to have that conversation as well. Okay. When did you start thinking of it as a business?
1: Pretty much when I finally hired a lawyer to help me incorporate the business. So I made it an S corporation and that's when I was like, okay, well, you showed up and you've paid to have this happen. Like it's time, it's time to take it seriously. I mean, I had been the whole time, but it's funny. Like I say that, but then there are still days even now that I'm like, Is this really what I'm doing? Like, how do I tell people what I'm doing? You know, like I consciously avoid the online part often in general conversation and say, I'm an artist and art teacher and I keep it simple. And then if people are more interested and want to hear, then I might say, I have an online community that I serve and then kind of move from there. But it's taken a long time for me to find the language that I'm comfortable with to describe what I do to kind of random people at a coffee, you know, chat or at a dinner party or whatever.
0: Yes just in your experience in Oman because you didn't have like the school and a network to fall back on how as an adult woman, will you suggest to other adult women in this position? Like how did you start forming a community and making friends? Because I felt like I was walking into ready-made groups and it, it was intimidating for me. Like you, I feel that I'm an introvert. So it was hell. So What is your advice for somebody who's starting from zero again and has to actually make those connections?
1: Accept that it's going to feel weird and it's going to feel like there's ready-made groups and show up to as many of them as you can until you find some other people who are relatively new like you looking for friends too. Because that's what happened, right? And that's what's been my experience is every time I move somewhere, it seems like I connect with people who are also recent transplants and even here in Ottawa. So It's helpful to put yourself out there and say, like, I'd give myself like a time frame and go, okay, what are things I know I love to do that make me feel self-care and love? So I found a yoga place to practice at. And I made sure even if I didn't make any friends with anyone there to start, I kept showing up because that's a place that would help me feel grounded and reconnected and kind of still around people, even if they weren't people I was super close to. And the funny thing is, is initially I was like, I don't think I'm going to make any friends there. And then most of my friends came from the yoga studio. But it took a year before I really connected with anyone there.
0: Yes, I know that feeling.
1: (laughs) And I did. And I went to some of those meetings, you know, like the meetings that they'll have for like wives of, you know, the trailing spouse meetings that different companies have and things like that. And I would try to go and. I just forced myself to go to some of those things. And some of them were a total dud and I felt totally uncomfortable and it just didn't work. And I trust that that means, okay, there, was, there wasn't there was anyone there for me. And sometimes that meant I stayed 15 minutes, but I showed up and I could tell myself I tried and I at least did a little something. But I did, I really missed the built-in teacher community. I missed having that like ready-made group of people who have similar interests and values who I could immediately, you know, make friends with. So, I felt like I struggled a lot more in Oman with developing and finding good friends than I did in Dubai, for sure.
0: Yeah, but now it's a skill that we have. <laughs> That's the end game. It's like, it's just another muscle that you will work on as an expat, kind of look at it that way. When you were in Oman, where, where were you getting support for sort of your emotional needs just outside your partner?
1: yoga was everything for me honestly i discovered a new kind of yoga and the teacher was very good at teaching it and sharing and so enthused and pumped about it that that made us all more excited and it's called ashtanga yoga It's very physically rigorous and it was kicking my butt. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so hard. And I felt like I was the worst person in the room. I felt so bad at it. And I was like, okay, well, you know, here I am telling people to build their skill in art and know that to learn and be better, you have to be bad for a while. Or, you know, that's our perceived, you know, leveling. And so I kept showing up and I kept showing up. And then I realized some people were like, I really like practicing next to you, Carrie, you have a really nice energy on the mat. And I was like, really? Thanks. Like, no (laughs) no clue, not a clue. And then, you know, that helped me kind of slow down. And it really was this really wonderful way for my introverted self to just reconnect with myself. Because even though I was in a group of people practicing, you know, the teacher's giving instruction and you just get to be on the mat. And there was something for me, that's been a spiritual experience for me. That's been the closest thing to a religious experience. I've had is being on that mat and feeling connected to all those people in the room doing the same thing, knowing that we're just focused on breath and that idea of connection or, you know, some people place an intention before their practice. So it could be like, you know, today I'm going to be more open to some of the strangers I meet or I want to, you know, show up and make sure I call someone I've been missing. And to be honest, too, I had such good friends in Dubai and we were so close that it was really easy to stay in touch with them and we'd make quick trips to the city and they'd come visit me. And that really helped me remember that I can make good friends and it just does take time and and patience to find the right people.
0: Quick fire, what is your one pet peeve? Or three?
1: (laughs) I hate when people eat with their mouth open. I hate the sound it literally makes me want to vomit. It feels like there's like hands on a chalkboard. It is the most repulsive thing to me. (laughs) I hate it so much. I wasn't expecting that one. I love it. Okay. (laughs) That is really one of my biggest pet peeves. Mine is burping. The other thing that kind of bugged me in Dubai was the queuing. Like people would bump into me all the time in queue and I'm like, get out of my space. I'd be bumped so many times and run into with grocery carts because people were trying to move a little two inches closer to get ahead or something. And that that annoyed me.
0: Wow. Yes. We didn't touch on that like personal space, but maybe another time. (laughs) Okay. So what is the TV show that you feel really guilty about loving,
1: about watching? I don't know. I'm trying to run through them all right now. Like some I have no shame about. I love watching Outlander and I have no shame around that one. I guess actually recently, I actually really like sci-fi fantasy and kind of comic stuff. I've always, that's always been an interest of mine since I was high school age, maybe even middle school. And I just started watching on Prime The Tick. It's just so silly and it, it makes fun of comic stuff and it's just so dumb in some ways. And I just love it. It makes me giggle and it's kind of carefree, even though there's some violence. And it's I mean, obviously, comic themes often always have something dark and bad happening. But it's just done in this silly, absurd way. And the character of the tick is just so naively optimistic. I just love that. And uh, yeah, I'd have to say that's probably the one I feel like a little bit sheepish admitting that I watch and love so much.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's not so bad. That's not so bad at all. When it was on, my thing used to be Jerseylicious. So exactly. There is no shame in the tick. Zero. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
1: you. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know. When I was younger, I loved The Real World from MTV. And that was kind of my guilty reality show TV pleasure. But then after The Real World, and I just yeah i didn't really connect with any i think it's because i moved in 2006 so all this stuff started happening and i didn't have tv or cable so i never had that opportunity to get sucked into any of those
0: that's also another thing with moving as well so is there a quote you love or something that you believe in that you just want to share that you would love to share with everybody what should they know
1: I do have a quote I love, but it's really long. And I didn't think to write it down. It's basically this idea that the people you love, you take with you everywhere and they live inside you. And that makes me feel so connected wherever I am in the world to the people I care about. And it could be years sometimes when I before I get to connect with people. But then when I do, they were always there. And, and those friendships, you just don't lose them. Sometimes time does separate you guys, but if you do have that opportunity to reconnect, it can just be like it was too. And yeah,
0: that's perfect. And one more weird question. What's I don't want to call it weird because these are other people's cultures. What's something that you've eaten that you, well, you wouldn't normally see on the menu
1: in Canada? Oh, well, actually, my weirdest like international eating experience was when I was a student abroad and living in Sweden and I ate, I think it was lamb's testicles. Whoa. Didn't see that one coming. (laughs) They had them like sausage in a soup. It was like a Viking dish. Right. Yeah. They had to come from somewhere, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like this, I bet you won't eat it thing because it was part of like one of our little cultural trips while we were there as a group of students. And I was like, I'll give it a go. So that's honestly kind of the most unusual thing I've eaten.
0: Wow. Okay. so travel has always been in you from a young sort of age.
1: I think that's actually what cemented my desire to travel and keep traveling, was when I decided to study abroad in university and chose Stockholm and loved every minute of it. And in fact, when I tried to go overseas afterwards to teach, I looked up every single international school in Sweden and Norway in hopes that I might go back because I loved living there. And it just didn't work out, but it did.
0: Yeah. So somebody's listening to this and they're not quite ready to contact you yet. They just want to kind of follow you online and look at what you're doing and what you say
1: and what you're creating. Where can people find you online? There's two places I'd really recommend. I would check me out on Instagram. It's at artist strong. I'm sharing a lot of my process and journey of working on my art right now because I'm working towards a solo show. And I also talk a little bit about the artist strong community and people there kind of share and we talk about art. And then if you're really interested in more of my messaging, artiststrong.com, I have hundreds of blog posts now since I've been doing it for years and years. And many of them are video content of me talking to you. And it's all kinds of topics. So you can go to artiststrong.com forward slash blog, and you'll see a bunch of blog posts and it's interviews with different creatives. It's me talking about mindset beliefs, it's giving little tips and technique instruction. So it's a great place to get started with all kinds of free content to see if if it feels like a good fit for you. Okay, is there anything else you wanted to add Just that if anyone does, you know, we can feel so alone when we're expats and feel so disconnected. So it's wonderful to listen to podcasts like this and remember that you're not alone. And if you guys are struggling or or need some kind of outlet, like message me at artiststrong on Instagram. I'm around. I'm not just a disembodied voice playing in your iPad or uh, iPod or phone. I, you know, we're real people here having these conversations. And that's the joy of this is we can actually try to connect in person when we travel and explore.
0: Oh, perfect. Thank
1: you. This has been awesome. I have learned so much. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun to have these conversations. Hi, I know everybody hates
0: this bit, so I'm going to be quick. Please take a moment and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast catcher is. I would love to hear your feedback on the show. Thanks so much.